0: Hi everybody and hi Rhiannon.
1: Hello Samuel, we're going to be doing today the Embryology of the Gut, it's the fourth in the series, we're going to link it into the, the last part of the third podcast that we did as well, um, but before we go into all of that, uh, Dr Webster, a few things have been happening since our last podcast. Like what? Well, Sam, tell me how you're feeling today. <laughs>
0: that's so artificial now isn't it, we worked it into it, all natural, and that's how you feel yeah. thank you for asking yeah Yeah. i'm tired um we mentioned i mentioned in a previous podcast when we were talking about uh dates of gestation (laughs) and uh, that sort of thing that my partner was pregnant and she gave birth um a little bit early and a little bit surprisingly which was nice um so i have a baby daughter annabelle who is um several weeks old at the moment and she's not even due to be born yet uh so being a premature baby she's got a small stomach and we need to feed her regularly and she likes to cry and keep us awake and that sort of thing but it's all very very good fun but there's even more relevance now to the uh the embryology that we teach um you know she was born at 32 weeks gestation which is is, is which is fine which is pretty good but like most babies born at that stage um her lungs hadn't developed properly so she had some breathing difficulties difficulties need a little bit of help and so on and so on so we'll have some nice examples to talk about in future podcasts when we go back to development of the respiratory system
1: yay can't wait
0: yeah anyway i'm tired so you can do all this Rihanna, and i'll just sit here and drink my coffee and those on the thing
1: fine right yeah, well yeah. just a little bit of a recap really before we get into the main meat and uh and of the podcast um Are you can say meat and two vegetables? yeah I was <laughs> <laughs> um okay so Just to recap what we've done before, the previous podcast, we had up until um, 18 days of development. So we had the first 18 days. We went up until gastrulation. Okay, so if you can just cast your mind back to think about the processes um, that were going on there. Um, and what we ended up with was a trilaminar disc. Okay, that's really important. So the trilaminar disc, we've got the endoderm, the ectoderm, and in between, the mesoderm. Okay, so if you can remember those three parts. Mm. Um, and we also had uh, a yolk sac.
0: Yeah, that was a good point. that like, what's the, We've got the trilaminar disc, and then we've got this big thing beneath the trilaminar disc, and that's the yolk sac.
1: And it's, relatively, it's still relatively large, isn't mm. it, in the embryo at the moment.
0: But it's those structures which are going to form the gut tube.
1: But how? Mm. And we'll go into that in a little bit. Yeah. Before we um, really get into it, things, we just want to mention that we are going to have a guest star clinician come in and be involved in this podcast. Yeah,
0: let's big him up. He'll love that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, you might have met him already. Steve Allen who is um, in paediatrics. is actually a reader in paediatrics. Yeah, he's a
0: consultant paediatrician and a reader in paediatrics, and he's the module lead for the elementary module at Swansea. So he, he has research interests and um, clinical interests in, in the gut and in children and babies. So perfect person to actually link the embryological stuff that we talk about to the actual clinical cases that are likely to be presented you, to you guys when you're working doctors, and he can tell us a little bit about that later.
1: So we thought we might like that. Okay, so, um, so now we'll just ha- uh, review the structure that we're going to go through in the podcast, okay? So we're going to talk about how we actually form the gut tube,
0: mm-hmm. okay? Which a few people do get stuck on.
1: Yeah, and then the gut tube um, has three divisions, so we'll look into the divisions of the gut tube. And then we'll go on and we'll talk about the structures that are formed and that are part of the digestive system.
0: Yeah, so we'll do that bit by bit then. So the, the three divisions of the gut tube we'll look at each part and uh, talk about the how the part those parts form and the associated parts you know like liver pancreas gallbladder blah 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 and so on. So we'll, okay, we'll should work, work out
1: quite well, I think.
0: Um you think or you hope?
1: <laughs> I know so. Mm. So um really we need to form this tube, don't we? That's the the beginning forming of the the gut tube. Yeah. So uh, how does that happen, Dr. Webster? Um
0: in its, in its simplest idea, if you think that we've got this uh, this flat trilaminar disc, and if we think mostly about the, the endodermal layer, um, it's the endodermal cells which are going to form the gut. Um, we've got a flat sheet, it's going to form a tube. It's like having a piece of paper and you roll it up into a tube in its simplest form. That's how the gut tube is formed.
1: Excellent. So
0: we've got the flat sheet, the, the yolk sac hanging off the bottom of it, and really think about that flat sheet folding around... Um, so uh, across the, the width dimension. Yeah, so a it lateral across, fold. Yeah. yeah, so it curls around to form a tube and that yolk sac kind of gets sucked up, it shrinks, it involutes, it comes back up and we have a gut tube. Yeah. Um, to add to that, at the same time, that sheet is actually folding, is actually curling up lengthways as well. So you've probably seen images of embryos and embryos, you know, they're all curled up, kind of you know, well, like say in, the, in, in the fetal position really. So it's at this stage... Um, so we're in the fourth week. Yes. After those first 18, 21 days of embryology that we spoke about last time, it's in this fourth week that this flat sheet of cells rolls over the former tube and starts to curl lengthwise to form that that curved, recognizable shape of the embryo. And that's it. Head to tube toe. Tube formed. Yeah. yeah, head to toe. And you'll remember as well, when we, we mentioned last week about the buccopharyngeal membrane and the cloacal membrane um, in the... Uh, which we could see when we were looking at the primitive streak, and remember that the buccopharyngeal membrane is going to form mouth, the mouth yeah, and the cloacal membrane is going to form the anus. Yeah, so then we have we have a tube that's essentially closed at either end by a membrane. That's it, tube.
1: Tube done. Tick it off the list. Okay. Brilliant. Next. So Yeah, now we've got the tube. We need to look at the divisions of the tube. Mm. We have three divisions of the gut, which you all know already, I'm sure. We've got a.
0: And these three divisions are really helpful to remembering your anatomy. Yeah, remember, they're, yeah, they're remember good. the decision, the the divisions. Remember the blood vessels associated. Remember the 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 um, the structures of the alimentary, uh, system that form in each of these parts. And bam, you've got half your anatomy sorted.
1: Good point. I was going to mention the blood supply. It's very. It makes a lot easier. So really, the the three divisions are the foregut, the midgut, and the hindgut.
0: Yeah. So. By this stage then, um we've got we've got our tube. Yep. Um it's not exactly like a rolled up newspaper though, is it? No. In the in the midsection it's uh, kind of Y shaped, so it's still extending out into the yolk sac as a yolk stalk because as we said, you know, this, this tube is forming from the yolk sac. So um we've got a tube running from the mouth um, it kind of runs out in a in a loop almost towards where the yolk sac was and then runs back into the embryo, back towards the, the anal canal. Um, let's see if we can put an image up of that. Otherwise, I'm sure you can find an image of that anywhere. Um, so then the foregut is from the mouth to... Um, where that loop starts, yeah, so from the mouth to where that loop out to the yolk sac would start.
1: Okay, and that's going to be where the liver bud starts. Uh, yeah, liver bud starts.
0: Yeah, well, yeah.
1: When we get into that.
0: Yeah, uh, and then the mid gut is pretty much that bit of, um, gut tube that's looping out towards mm-hmm. where the yolk sac was, where the yolk sac is involuted to, and everything past that down to the anus, down to the cloaca, then is the hind gut. Easy. So, what's the importance of that then?
1: the four guts biggest
0: yeah
1: and it's got loads of um buds that are going to come off it Outgrowth.
0: yes um what do we call those extra jobby what's it thingies extra
1: yeah that's right <laughs>
0: <laughs> accessory accessory organs of the digestive system
1: yeah like that's right. nice um one thing I wondered if you were going to mention is mesentries mm. can we go into those
0: yeah um Should we do that now? no okay <laughs> it's probably neatest to talk about the mesentries when we talk about the liver because the okay. liver starts to form within the ventral mesentery and so on um, so with foregut, midgut and hindgut uh, the foregut then the, this little tube of the foregut is going to form the yeah, it's going to form the pharynx, the oral cavity tongue, tonsils, salivary, glands it's also going to form the, uh, the respiratory system mm, interesting, we'll look at that we'll in a couple of later. weeks um, it's also then going to form the esophagus the stomach the duodenum to the bile duct, part of it. So yeah, first part of the duodenum. the uh, pancreas and your liver. And then liver, yeah, biliary apparatus and the pancreas. That's foregut stuff. Midgut's a lot simpler. Midgut is going to form the small intestine, so those long loops of intestine. It's going to form the cecum, the appendix, and then the first part of the, of the large bowel, the ascending colon, and then about two thirds of the right part of the transverse colon. And then everything from then on, so the uh, the remaining third of the uh, transverse colon on the left side, the descending colon, the sigmoid colon, the rectum, the superior part of the anal canal, uh, and also um, some parts of the bladder and the urethra are going to be formed from the hindgut. And um, the interesting bit about this is that... Um, the structures of the foregut are going to be supplied by the celiac trunk, so that major branch from the abdominal layer water, the celiac trunk. All of all of the structures from the foregut are going to take blood supplies from that. Um, the midgut is going to be supplied by... Ask
1: me, ask me. <sighs> superior what's mesenteric. the midgut going to
0: be supplied by? The
1: superior mesenteric artery. Yeah,
0: and what's the hindgut going to be supplied by? The
1: inferior mesenteric artery.
0: Very good, you see. So foregut, midgut, and hindgut, each of those parts of the gut tube have distinct... Um, Blood supplies. Celiac trunk, inferior... Sorry, celiac trunk, superior mesenteric artery, inferior mesenteric artery. Very nice. Very neat. neat. Yeah. Okay. So are we going to take those step by step then? Are we going to look at the the structures of the foregut? I think we should. Yeah, okay. We're not going to talk about the pharynx or the mouth or anything like that. That's that's too bitty. Should we
1: start the oesophagus?
0: Yeah. Um, We'll talk about the mouth and the larynx and the pharynx when we look at the um, pharyngeal arches. Well, I like the pharyngeal arches. Yeah, you can do it then. Okay. Um, so do you want to talk about the esophagus and the stomach and the duodenum, how they form?
1: I can try. I think you might have to fill in a few little bits. Well, basically, from um, as I see it, the, the part of the foregut that's going to form the esophagus actually elongates, okay? So everything's growing, but this is elongating, and it doesn't reach its final, uh, its relative length until week eight. Remember, the formation of the foregut is starting... Uh, The formation of the gut in total is starting at week four, okay? So the final length, the relative final length of the esophagus isn't reached until seven weeks, okay? Um, And then within it, we've got this epithelia, okay? And they they start proliferating. And they actually fill up the whole of the tube, okay? Yeah,
0: and this is a theme we see throughout the development of the gut tube.
1: Yeah, and so so they fill up what was a hollow tube.
0: Um, And they were just lining that hollow tube.
1: Yeah, but then the lumen clears again so Mm. and um, is it through cell death
0: no i'm not i'm really not entirely sure of the mechanism by why it does this how this has come about or
1: it's called uh re-canalization the formation so from the so it goes hollow tube fill tube hollow tube again yeah not really sure why that happens
0: no I'm, i'm not either to be honest
1: Okay, but basically, this, this the re so the formation of the hollow tube again, that's happening about eight weeks, okay? Um, and there are things that happen if, you know, there are abnormalities and things like that if development doesn't happen properly, but I think we'll leave that for Steve Allen to cover.
0: Yeah, and we can hint at it that um, uh, clinical complications um, from from this tend to be a blockage of part of the gut tube somewhere because of this process, because... And the tube gets filled up by epithelial cells and then clears. If it doesn't clear, you might have an atresia, a complete blockage of the tube somewhere, either in the esophagus or... or Lower down anywhere, really, yeah. Uh, Or you might have a stenosis, a narrowing of the lumen, which can give clinical symptoms. And like I say, Steve can talk about that. So, yeah, the esophagus is nice and simple, really. We've just got this tube, first part of the foregut, pretty much. And as the uh, the embryo is changing, it lengthens. Um, Yeah. Um, So then at the bottom of the esophagus, we have the stomach.
1: Yeah, and the stomach, um, when the stomach forms, the tube begins to dilate, basically.
0: Mm, so the, st- the stomach starts off as just a simple tube, just mm. part of that foregut tube, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and then what happens is one side grows faster than the other side. It's actually the dorsal side of the tube that grows faster, um, which means that um, we kind of get this, the greater curve, it ends up being the greater curvature of the stomach that you all know from your anatomy, okay? Yes, yeah,
0: so we know the shape of the adult stomach. Yeah, that's and how it that's, forms.
1: And that's how it forms. It's really quite fascinating. And the stomach actually rotates 90 degree clockwise. This is very, very important because it takes other things that are attached with it. Okay, We'll yeah. come to that a bit later. Um, and it also affects the innervation as well. And I'm sure you all know that the vagus um, innervates the stomach. Well, what actually happens is the anterior part of the stomach ends up being innervated by the left vagus and the posterior part... By the right vagus.
0: Yeah, as a direct result of the stomach rotating through 90 degrees. And rotation, again, is a common theme we see throughout the formation of the gut tube. Yeah. Mm. Um, so you wanted to talk about mesentery and that sort of thing. I was going to mention it. Yeah, okay. So uh, the ventral mesogastrium, um, so we're talking about essentially... Sheets of connective tissue, aren't we? So the stomach is attached to the dorsal wall by a sheet of connective tissue, a sheet of mesentery, the dorsal mesentery, or the dorsal mesogastrium, gastrium, gastric, as we're talking about the stomach. Um, And the ventral mesogastrium continues ventrally from the stomach towards what will be the anterior abdominal wall, essentially. Um, As the stomach rotates, it carries around the ventral mesogastrium, which will become the lesser sac. And it carries around the dorsal mesogastrium, which is hanging off the greater curvature. And this continues to expand and hangs down over the intestines to become the...
1: Greater omentum!
0: Yeah, so that's where that comes from. You can from. see
1: that. You, I, I'm sure you can all remember seeing the protections that we had of those. So now you know how it's formed.
0: So that starts off as a simple tube held within that sheet of mesentery. As the stomach rotates, it carries around the mesentery to form the lesser sac and the greater sac. Uh, the greater omentum. The greater omentum is... Yeah, it's, form because it keeps getting bigger and hangs down um uh, we were talking about um narrowings mm. um and this is a little bit different but in the in the pylorus of the stomach uh you can also get a narrowing pyl- pyloric stenosis sten- pyloric stenosis, stenosis which is probably fairly common i think and most people have probably know somebody who's talked about this or know somebody who's maybe mm. uh, had this problem but um you get a narrowing in the pylorus of the stomach. The stomach is uh, filled with milk, but the milk really can't pass through to the duodenum. Um, so Yippee. the stomach gets expanded and then eventually, yeah, the stomach contracts projectile and vomit. proper projectile vomit across the room. Lovely. Another example of problems of stenosis within the gut. Okay, so there's the stomach.
1: So that's not too bad. So the important parts of the stomach is really the, the fact that the dorsal side grows faster, so that's how we get the greater greater curvature, it rotates 90 degrees and it takes its mesentery with it.
0: Yeah. So that's occurring from about 28 days when it starts to expand through to about 48 days where we have, you know, an adult looking stomach um, in its adult rotated position. Next part of the gut tube then would be the... Duodenum. Duodenum, which is also affected by the rotation of the stomach.
1: Because it's all attached. Mm. So basically, the duodenum is interesting because it's obviously, like we said before, part foregut, part midgut. Okay, so you're going to have to remember that, and um, obviously because of that, it has the two different blood supplies. Okay, so it has the celiac trunk and it also has blood supply from the superior mesenteric arteries okay well basically the duodenum grows very rapidly between weeks four and six to form this kind of c-shape
0: which is how we see the duodenum in the adult we, we recognize it's the c-shaped first part of the small intestine isn't it absolutely so that's how the c-shape is formed
1: okay and, and also because it's part of the same tube we also get this recanalization as well mm. which brings with it the problems that we saw before the stenosis and the atresia
0: yeah uh and if we if if you have a blockage there, the difference between a the blockage there and higher up is that there's likely to be bile within the vomit, you know, depending upon where the, where the blockage is, whether it's past the, uh, the bile duct so or So that not.
1: will help you locate where it's going to be. Excellent. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, excellent.
0: Um, and again, because the stomach is rotating, the C shape of the duodenum is pulled around to the right with the stomach. Right. Okay.
1: Excellent.
0: That's it. That's, that's foregut ticked. Well, that's the tubes anyway.
1: Are we going to do some buds?
0: Yeah. So, we should talk about then the liver and the gallbladder. Yeah. Um, So again, you were talking about the uh, the mesentries, and uh, the liver starts to develop as a little bud um, within the septum transversum, uh, well within the ventral mesentery, rather.
1: Yeah, so ventral outgrowth, so...
0: Yeah, so we've got that that, that sheet of connected tissue holding the gut onto the anterior wall, the ventral wall, so we've got the ventral mesentery. Within there, some of the cells begin to form a bud, begin begin to form the liver, uh, which enlarges and grows from about week four onwards. Um,
1: It can be called the hepatic diverticulum. Yes,
0: yeah. And it's connected to the foregut by a small tube, which will become the bile duct. And then uh, a small outgrowth from the bile duct itself is going to form the gallbladder, Quite, um, works so out quite well really liver, gallbladder, um, duodenum all connected by a, a small tube in between the three um,
1: the, the liver grows quite rapidly doesn't it it's got such an important function it actually ends up growing quite rapidly and it ends up being uh, about 10% of the body weight yes so because it's functional
0: minutes. at a fairly early stage or parts of it are functional I mean, the liver has, I've always been told you know, five over 500 different functions uh, hmm. and many of those functions are active um, very early on in yeah. uh, the stages of the fetus. Um, of course, many newborn babies suffer from a little bit of jaundice, suggesting that not all of the liver functions are working at full capacity until after birth. But yeah, much of the liver is functioning before birth and it takes up a huge part of the developing embryo and the, and the fetus. Um, going back to the connective tissues again. So if we say that the liver is forming within that sheet of ventral mesentery, then the, the the bit of the sheet between the stomach and the liver is going to bef- become the lesser omentum. And then the the sheet between the liver and the ventral abdominal wall, or the anterior abdominal wall as we call it in the adult, will become the falciform ligament. So think of that. That It starts off you know, as, as tubes within a simple sheet being held in place. And then, of course, it all starts to rotate a little bit and, and, and get tweaked.
1: Well, it all makes sense now.
0: Um... So, as you were saying, talking about the um,
1: body weight and the the functioning of the the liver.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, by week 12, the liver's starting to produce bile. Yeah. And the meconium, the initial contents of the gut tube, change colour, become dark green. Um, And that rotation of the duodenum in the stomach then takes the bile duct to pass around so it enters the duodenum posteriorly. Excellent. Does this make any sense, you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Probably.
1: So is that is that everything on the liver?
0: Yeah, that's what we're really interested in. I mean, we're not too interested in function or yeah, we're more interested in position and where it comes from and how it's connected and that sort of thing, right? Yeah. Keep it simple. Um, so again, we could try and include some diagrams of liver, gallbladder and uh, bile duct connecting all together. Okay. Yeah. So then the other accessory organ in this region is the pancreas. Do you want to talk about the pancreas?
1: I can try. Um, basically, the pancreas forms pretty much along with the liver and the gallbladder. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, and it starts forming as, as two buds. You have two buds that are going to end up making the pancreas. Okay. Um, you have a small ventral bud and a large dorsal bud. Okay, So they're both buzzing off the foregut tube. Yeah. Correct. Okay, so these two buds, remember that when the stomach rotates, okay, so that, uh, and it, uh, that affects everything else because it's all connected. So when the stomach rotates, it br- actually ends up bringing the ventral and the dorsal buds together. And they end up fusing, as do the ducts generally.
0: Yeah, because the, the, the ventral pancreatic bud had its own duct, really. Well, it was part of the bile duct, wasn't it? Um, and the dorsal pancreatic bud had its own duct. And that's a key point, then, that these two ducts come together. Um, so anatomically, it looks a little bit weird.
1: Yeah, I mean, when, yeah, the, ducts, the ducts fuse, and um, they actually enter the duodenum together at a point that we have seen definitely in anatomy called the major duodenal papillae okay they actually join and enter at the same point as the bile duct
0: yeah okay so the ventral pancreatic bud is the smallest bud but its duct is the dominant duct it's that's the duct that remains and the dorsal pancreatic bud which is the larger part which is kind of the the tail and the neck and what have you the pancreas that duct joins the the, uh, the bile duct and it all goes through the same the same yeah all the pancreatic the exocrine entrance. secretions yeah. pass through the same duct into the duodenum however in a proportion of people
1: they don't fuse the ducts that's right don't fuse
0: so you get an extra duct Which usually we, superior to the the major duct
1: yeah and we call that the minor duodenal duodenal papillae okay? Yeah. so it's fairly self obvious it's and not um, uncommon no and and you know your your pancreas actually starts to produce insulin at 10 weeks okay so 10 weeks um things are starting to happen and starting to be functional and it actually um, produces glucagon from 15 weeks.
0: Yeah, like. and that's really important when you think about um, the size of the, the embryo, the size of the fetus, the role of the placenta, and um, if you look at the function of the placenta and the increased levels of glucose in the maternal circulation and, and that um, gradient pushing glucose across into the, the fetus, the glucose has got to be managed. So there's insulin, there's glucagon, um, and that's really, really important, and would get covered far more in um, physiology of pregnancy lectures. But bear that in mind. You know, by ten weeks we've got functional um, endocrine pancreatic cells. Okay. Onto the
1: midgut. That's a full
0: gut properly done though. Sweet. Midgut is um, a little bit simpler.
1: Hooray! So
0: all of the parts of the midgut then are supplied by the superior mesenteric artery. So that is from. That part of the duodenum we were just speaking about, through to um, two thirds of the way across the transverse colon, that's all formed from the mid gut. And at this stage, if we go back to um, the early uh, form, the, the early development of the of the gut tube, it's a simple tube. Um, so yeah, weeks four five, um, it's a little loop of tube looping out into what is now becoming the uh, umbilical cord tubey connecting stalk thing <laughs>
1: yeah between uh, weeks five to six actually grows quite rapidly doesn't it
0: yeah so we've got a simple tube which is going to form that huge length of gut i mean folds, oh, off top my, yeah top of my head i couldn't imagine that i can't remember how long that piece of gut is but the small intestine is very very long yeah um so yeah it elongates very very rapidly and as it elongates it starts to rotate as well and if you were looking um at the ventral aspect it would rotate counterclockwise wouldn't it um so it elongates and it rotates and that blood vessel the superior mesenteric artery that has been taken with it is also pulled and rotated and extends and sends branches out to the the developing um midgut uh, and as it as it elongates it starts to loop so we start to get those um those uh
1: say it G- What? <laughs> Jejuno-ileal, you
0: know
1: is that right? Yeah, go for it. Did, is that right? Jejuno-ileal you know loops. I yeah,
0: know is it. it starts to form all of the loops of the jejunum and Je- the ileum. Yeah. Um, Je- all of those, all those loops and folds that we see in the adult are formed by this rapid elongation process. And this, is, this continues through to week eight. And it continues to rotate as well, counterclockwise. Um, in basically,
1: fa- there's not enough room inside the embryo. Yeah,
0: there? by week eight, it's elongated so much that it can't stay within the embryo. So we
1: bursting out.
0: I wouldn't say bursting <laughs> out. There is a normal physiological herniation oh, <laughs> of boring. the elongating midgut it's true. into the, into the uh, umbilical cord. And that's entirely normal. And as I think Steve might mention later, um, that usually returns to the abdominal cavity, but occasionally doesn't. So some of those loops sometimes remain in the, um, in the umbilical cord and cause future problems. Um, but normally... Those loops and that elongating uh, midgut is then drawn back into the abdominal cavity. So
1: that as the embryo's growing and there's a more room now in the embryo. yeah, and as
0: it rotates and gets pulled in and what have you, um, and through week ten, week eleven, week twelve, um, by this time, the total rotation of all these tubes is about two hundred and seventy degrees. So we've gone from a simple tube, it's rotated, if you're looking at the embryo, uh, at its ventral aspect, it's rotated can- can- counterclockwise, 270 degrees, elongated a huge amount, and gives us our small intestine. And as it rotates, the cecum is then pulled down into the lower right, right quadrant okay. of the abdomen, normally. Yeah. And there are also interesting problems of malrotation, which Steve may well talk about later. So this rotation is an important process in that it doesn't always occur uh, normally. It sometimes it actually rotates the other way. Um, but that's the normal process. Okay.
1: So really, I think that's the mid gut done. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah, quite. one
0: other point then to make is that like as we mentioned of the structures of the foregut that simple midgut tube is held to the posterior wall by the mesentery by that sheet of connected tissue essentially the dorsal mesentery and as the gut is elongated and rotated it's taken that mesentery with it so we see in the adult that the mesentery has a a fairly small attachment to the posterior abdominal wall but it has become a very large sheet tying all of the the small intestine um, to the posterior abdominal wall so it starts off as a simple sheet, simple loop. As that loop extends, rotates, becomes longer and longer, it takes all of that dorsal mesentery with it, which is why it looks so complicated.
1: Now have we finished?
0: Mm, yeah, go on then.
1: Okay, now we can talk about the hindgut. Hooray, we're nearly at the end.
0: Right?
1: <laughs> okay, basically, so... Um, now, where was this looking from? The hindgut is from the...
0: Left side. Yeah, of the the transverse colon. That final left part, that left third of the transverse colon-ish.
1: All the way down to the rectum and the superior part of the anal canal.
0: Mm, And at that point, there's actually um, a meeting of um, endoderm and ectoderm. Mm. Mm. So the superior part of the anal canal is formed from the endoderm, from the gut tube.
1: Same as everything else.
0: Yeah, uh, and the the rest of it is is kind of ectodermy. We'll, We'll talk about that in a minute. So we should say the hindgut then is from the... The, the remaining left part of the transverse colon to the superior part of the anal canal. And this is, uh, the embryology of this links to the blood supply that we see in the adult. Correct. Um, which if you look at um, portal anastomosis, there's one of those in, in the anal canal. And that's because of the different embryological origins of different parts of the anal canal. But by the by, I'm whispering again.
1: Okay, so really I want you to take me through now um, the formation of the anal canal, the the fact of the urorectal septum. What's that got to do with it? Mm. Um, and then I also want you to mention the allantois.
0: Oh, you do? Yeah, please. Okay. Um, okay, so all of these structures are supplied by the inferior mesentery artery. Um, really then, we need to talk about the cloaca. So the cloaca is... Um, it's the, it's the last part of the hindgut. So think of it as that last bit of the tube. It's it's that last... It's a kind of a cavity. Um, it's got a membrane closing it off from the external embryo, so the cloacal membrane, which we mentioned earlier. And it's going to form parts... It's going to form the last bit of the gut tube, but it's also going to form parts of the urogenital system. Okay, so now, within that that cloacal cavity So the, the cloaca. cloaca is just a cavity? Yeah, at this point. Um, the urorectal septum is another piece of essentially of connective tissue which is going to grow towards that cloacal membrane and split the cloaca into the two parts. So the ventral part is going to become the urogenital sinus and, you know, it's going to become parts of the bladder, parts of the urethra and so on and so on. The dorsal part is going to then form the anal canal and the rectum. Um so this is occurring during what week seven, something like that. Um, well, from week four through to week seven, let's say, uh, and by week seven the urorectal septum comes to meet the cloacal membrane.
1: Right, and then that's when the cloacal membrane.
0: And that's when it. That's ruptures. right. That's when the clo- cloacal membrane ruptures. Uh, Usually by about the end of week seven. Okay. And then you've got then the opening for the anal canal and dorsally it, and the and opening, opening for the urogenital yep. system ventrally. Ventrally. Excellent. Yeah. Two holes. Yeah. Um, so I, I mentioned the anal canal then. So we say that the um, the superior two thirds is formed from the high gut and the remaining third is formed from the proctodium, which is um, ectoderm derived. Right. Um, so, ectoderm outside the embryo, endoderm inside the embryo. Uh, so, the first, the superior part of the anal canal is supplied by the inferior mesenteric artery. The inferior part of the anal canal, then, is supplied by the inferior rectal arteries, uh, the internal pudendal artery. So, we see those differences anatomically, and that's the embryological reason for it. I think Steve is going to talk to us about some of the abnormalities we see in that region as well, From largely from problems with the the urorectal septum properly dividing the cloaca into the two parts mm. you sometimes get uh links between the urogenital side and the anal side yeah. or the anal the anus for example doesn't open properly and that sort of thing quite interestingly though
1: most of the abnormalities in that area happen in the anorectal region don't they rather than in the in the, yeah. the dorsal part rather than the ventral um urogenital part
0: um apparently so Yeah. So you wanted to talk about the allantois as well?
1: A little bit. I think we should cover it.
0: Okay. So the allantois, um, in the human, as far as um, we need to be really interested in medicine, the allantois is kind of, it's almost like a bit of the hindgut sticking out into the yolk Sack. Into the umbilical stalk. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's kind of... It's kind of left over from that, what we spoke about originally, the formation of the gut tube and right. the, you know, the disappearing of the yolk sac and that sort of thing. It's a little bit of, um, hind gut sticking out eventually into the connecting stalk, into the, the, the umbilical stalk. Um, and in humans, once the cloaca becomes split by the urorectal septum, it is then on the urogenital side of the cloaca. So okay. it's going to take part in forming parts of the bladder and that sort of thing. Um, which really isn't that, that interesting. But in egg-laying birds and reptiles and, I think, egg-laying mammals, it's an important organ of respiration. So in an egg, you can exchange gases across the shell, right? So uh, nitrogen out and oxygen in and that yeah. sort of thing. And the allantois is it's a big vascular organ that's involved in that. So it's, it's kind of a waste reservoir. To, so you can excrete okay. waste gases, but okay. also... Um, Oxygen coming across through the shell and into the allantois. So, so it's it's really important if you're living in an egg. Yeah. But not so important if you're a human. So it's but kind we'll of left
1: Okay, all right.
0: Yeah, there might be some biologists out there who can explain it in far more detail than that. But that's... That'll do, I think. Yeah, it's it's a nice interesting structure, but probably not if you're a medical student.
1: One of those things that you might not need to know.
0: <laughs> what? We need to know everything. Um, okay, so I think we've covered everything we need to cover. Well. Uh, introduce Steve Allen to do the... um,
1: Clinical
2: bit.
1: Hello everybody. Um, Today we have with us Dr Steve Allen, who's going to be going through a few of the um, abnormalities that we see in gut development. Um, We wanted to make it as clinically relevant for you as possible, so we've got a few things that we're going to go through, and I believe... The first thing we're going to look at is pyloric stenosis. So I'll just hand over to Steve and with the question, what exactly is pyloric stenosis?
2: Okay, thanks, Rhiannon. Um, pyloric stenosis. To give it its full title, it's hypertrophic pyloric stenosis okay. because it's the it's hypertrophy of the circular muscle of the pyloric sphincter.
1: Right. Okay, I think I've got that. So um, so how often does it happen? I mean, how often do you see it when you were working?
2: Yeah, this is fairly common. I mean, having babies come in with pyloxenosis is is very well known. I think the frequency is quoted to be between about 6 and 8 per 1,000 live births. So that's almost 0.1% of all live births.
1: So that really is quite common?
2: Yeah. Of course, it tends to occur much more in males. There's said to be about 5 males for every female. And in particular, it happens in the firstborn male, and I don't really—I don't think that that's understood. Apparently, the highest risk group is the first-born males when the mother herself has been affected, and then about 20% of those infants would have it.
1: Very interesting. Probably quite a lot of research being done into that. I would have thought. All right, Steve. So I wonder if could you just explain to me a little bit about what causes pyloric stenosis?
2: Yeah, sure. I think um, actually not much is known about the cause. It's said to be polygenic. So there isn't, there certainly isn't a gene identified. Um, It's actually thought not to be a congenital lesion. In other words, it's not present at birth, but it's acquired within the first couple of weeks of birth or so. And it's thought mainly to be a problem with the enteric nervous system, although the exact details of that are not known.
1: All right, that is interesting. Okay, so we know a little bit more about the background of it, but um, how do you diagnose it?
2: Yeah, well, the, the typical picture is that an infant's born okay, usually goes home, but then sometime between the age of two and eight weeks, sometimes later, but usually during that period, they start vomiting. And initially, the vomiting isn't too troublesome, but fairly quickly, it becomes more frequent and more forceful, and in fact, is called projectile vomiting.
1: Yeah, I like a bit of projectile vomiting.
2: <laughs> it's... Um, you get these stories of mums saying that they just cannot appreciate how this baby can shoot such (laughs) a stream of vomit. Brilliant. The other very important feature about the vomit is it doesn't contain any bile. Yes. Because obviously the obstructions at the outlet of the stomach, so it's non-bilious vomiting.
1: Right, okay. So that's how you diagnose. Um, What do you do about it?
2: Well, in terms of the, the full clinical picture... I mean, vomiting is quite common in babies, mm-hmm. and, um, but typic- the, the babies with pyloric stenosis often have a very typical appearance mm-hmm. in that they are lively, they tend to look very an- anxious and be very hungry for good reason. Right, yeah. As it progresses a bit, they become uh, a little bit dehydrated, can often become constipated, and then they can fail to thrive, so they become quite skinny. Then they have a kind of an old man appearance because they lose subcutaneous fat And they look like wizened little old men, if it's quite progressive. Like skinny
0: premature babies do.
2: Exactly, exactly. But in this case, they look very anxious because seriously, they're feeding away. And yet they're not satisfying their nutritional needs. So they have this kind of fairly characteristic frown on their faces.
1: Yeah. And so, um, you know, what steps do you take then? What do you have to do in the repair process?
2: In terms of um, confirming the diagnosis, the usual thing to do is what's called a test feed. And that's where you put the baby on the mum's knee and you feed, either breastfeeding or bottle feeding, and you uncover the upper abdomen and you look for visible peristalsis. Uh, when it's well established, the stomach is trying desperately to push the milk beyond the pyloric obstruction. And you s- you can see these very prominent waves of peristalsis crossing the stomach um, to rhythmically towards the um, pyloric area you can see that and that's said to be fairly diagnostic you also palpate the abdomen um, if you put your hand in the epigastrium and your fingers just in the right upper quadrant you can sometimes feel what's called a tumor or olive which is the thickened pyloric muscle and if you if you get those features then that's a fairly secure um, clinical examination yeah.
1: And even if you're, if you're not sure even then, is there anything else you do? Or?
2: Yeah, these days um, you would normally do some radiology. You can do a barium meal, yeah. obviously that shows the pyloric mass, or more likely is an ultrasound scan. And there are certain criteria for the length of the pylorus and the thickness of the muscle as detected on an ultrasound scan, and that's supposed to be a very highly sensitive method. And these days, most surgeons wouldn't go ahead and operate unless it's confirmed by an ultrasound scan.
1: Okay, so and it is an operation that's required
2: then? That's right. Um, as you may expect, these, these babies get quite dehydrated. Because they're losing gastric contents, uh, they get a metabolic disturbance. So they typically get a, a metabolic alkalosis, a hypochloremic alkalosis. So when you take their blood, um, if you do a blood gas, they, they're alkalotic, and they have low chloride, low sodium, and as it progresses, low potassium. So the first thing a surgeon will ask you to do is to correct that metabolic defect. So you Mm -hmm. give them IV fluids, using normal saline with some dextrose and some added potassium, and you give them that for a few hours or a day or so. And once they're metabolically stable, they will then go ahead and do the operation. During that time, you have a nasogastric tube down on free drainage. Right. Because clearly the gastric secretions are collecting, Mm. and you don't want the baby to aspirate. So you let those drain away, but you replace it intravenously.
1: Right. Okay. Anything else about pyloric stenosis we should know?
2: Well, then, then the surgeons go on to do what's called a pyloromyectomy, sorry, pyloromyotomy, um, in other words, just cutting the um, the circular muscle of the pyloric sphincter, also called Ramsted's procedure, and that f- tends to be fairly straightforward. Mm. Um, a complication is that they don't cut deep enough, and then the baby gets recurrent obstruction and needs a, a redo operation. Or sometimes the the wound dehisses. Those are the sort of common complications. But otherwise, the management is basically always surgical and usually very successful.
1: Brilliant. And not a slight scar?
2: Yeah, a small scar in the upper abdomen.
1: Right, okay. And just for interest's sake, I'd like you all to know that Will Ferrell was a sufferer from pyloric stenosis. And if you watch any of his movies like Anchorman, where he gets his shirt off, you can apparently see the scar. Brilliant. Okay, I think the second thing we're going to move on to was we're going to talk about malrotation. Now, if you guys can remember back to what you've just heard, we talked about the rotation that occurs in the gut. Um, we looked at the stomach rotates and also the intestine. So which what, what kind of malrotation are we talking about
2: here, Steve? Uh, this is um, intestinal malrotation. Okay. And that is um, quite common. It's said to occur in about one in 500 people. Um, Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, seen it uh, fairly often. Again, most of these are surgical conditions, but they often present to the medics, um, and then we call in surgeons to help out with their diagnosis and management. Um, Malrotation, you know, is a failure of the of the gut to rotate and also fix normally within the abdominal cavity during intrauterine development.
1: Okay, and um, so yeah, you told us how often it happens. Why? Why? What's anything? Do we know anything about why it doesn't rotate the right way?
0: Or no, I think That's our job in there is it? embryologists to answer that. Shh. <laughs> it is. It is.
2: People say it's maybe due to drugs during pregnancy or something, but um, basically, I don't think people know. No.
1: Right. Okay. What problems does it
2: cause? Um, well, I guess for most people, malrotation is asymptomatic, yeah. and you know it's diagnosed at autopsy if at all. But the great risk is um, well, there's a few things that can happen. The most important one is volvulus, and that's when, the, um, because the gut isn't fixed properly and it's l- not lying in the right position, it can suddenly twist on itself. And if it does that, it, it, um, it causes an, an intestinal obstruction and also can compromise its blood supply. Um, so that would be sort of sudden onset of um, bilious vomiting, so if you see a baby or uh, you know that's vomiting and there's bile in it that's a surgical emergency because mm. that suggests gut obstruction and uh, you need to call a surgeon urgently so bilious vomiting abdominal distension um perhaps upper abdominal distension if the if the twist is quite high in the bowel and also the the infant's in pain sort of drawing up its legs and crying um if the if the gut has twisted and it's become ischemic then it can bleed and there can be melina, sort of blood in the stools. And if it's fairly advanced, the infant can then present quite collapsed. So a differential mm. diagnosis might be sepsis, septic shock.
1: Right. That Sounds pretty serious, really. Um, okay, so um, what do you do about it?
2: Um, yeah, well, the first thing, confirm the diagnosis. So um, if you're confident of the diagnosis from your clinical assessment, urgent laparotomy, Right, okay. Is indicated because you're at risk of, you know, bowel ischemia, losing a section of bowel that, you know, then has to be um, resected and you end up with short bowel syndrome. So urgent laparotomy and the diagnosis can be um, confirmed at operation. If it's not so urgent and sometimes the bowel can twist and the, the child can vomit a bit and then it untwists itself and it settles. And these children can sometimes come in and out of hospital a few times before the penny drops and, uh, you know, somebody does a, an, um, a definitive investigation. So you can do a barium enema, and that will show that the, um, the cecum is either lying in the right upper quadrant or the left upper quadrant, which yeah. shows that the bowel's in the wrong position.
0: Yeah. yeah, we talked about that when we talked about the embryology, didn't we, about yeah, the cecum yeah. dropping down into the right upper quadrant, uh, the, yeah. Right, the right quadrant lower. where it should be. Yeah, right lower quadrant. So diagnostically, if it's not there, I see. That's
2: right. If the baby's not too sick, then you can do a bearing meal. And that shows that the duodenum should cross the midline over to the right-hand side. But in malrotation, it doesn't cross the midline. And then most of the the remainder of the small bowel lies to the right of the midline. So that's a fairly classic appearance. More recently, people have done Doppler ultrasound scans, where they look at the, the relationship of the superior mesenteric artery and the superior mesenteric vein, what you see, apparently, although I've never seen this, is a clockwise rotation of the vein around the superior mesenteric artery, and that's called the whirlpool sign. And if you're a fairly clever Doppler ultrasonographer, you can actually make the diagnosis for malrotation just from ultrasound. That's something for
1: us all to aim for. Brilliant.
2: Yeah. In terms of management? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Again, um, if there's intestinal obstruction nasogastric tube on free drainage to prevent um, aspiration, IV fluids to re, you know, resuscitate the baby and um, keep the homeostasis normal, probably antibiotic cover cover because there's a risk of bowel ischemia and then in, infection and peritonitis, and of course, urgent surgical management. Brilliant.
1: Superb. Right. Number three, the third thing we're going to look at is uh, omphalocele. Have
2: I pronounced that right? That's right. Omphalocele or sometimes called exomphalos.
1: Ooh, like that one. And am I right in thinking that it's an abdominal wall defect?
2: That's that's right. Yeah. Um, I think it comes from the Greek, which is tumour of the navel, omphalocele. Oh, very good. Very good. Yeah. And this is a, there's a, it's a congenital lesion um, within the umbilical region. So the umbilical cord is in fact replaced by a sac made up of Wharton's jelly and peritoneum, and that sac contains bowel loops and sometimes even part of the liver. So it's like a translucent sac sitting on the umbilical area with bowel contents in it and the umbilicus sort of sticking on top like a bobble.
1: Right. Goodness. So how often does that happen?
2: That, the incidence of that is somewhere between 1 in 5,000 and 20,000 live births. It's pretty rare. It's fairly rare, but anybody who's worked in paediatrics for a number of years will have seen one or two. Oh, okay. You know, so they they you know they come a, a, across fairly commonly. Right. If you were to look at stillbirths, of course, or mm. spontaneously aborted fetuses, then um, the incidence will be much higher.
1: Oh right, okay. So um, so it's relatively rare, but you're going to probably come across it. Then um, so, we do. Do we know why? Because it's obviously this malformation of the. Yeah. The... Again, I'd have
2: to ask you. I think it's okay. completely unknown what the causes of this defect is. Right. Okay. In terms of a omphalocele, um, it's often associated with other problems, particularly chromosomal defects. So, trisomy 18 and trisomy 13 are commonly associated with omphalocele for some reason. Um, also, it can be associated with some other genetic disorders, such as Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome and some of these mm. fairly uncommon but well-known syndromes in pediatrics.
1: Right, and it, and it's fairly easy to diagnose.
2: Yeah, it's usually obviously picked up during Mm -hmm. pregnancy in in an ultrasound scan. And if it is picked up, then it's fairly mandatory to go on and do an amniocentesis to look for chromosomal defects. Right, yeah. Um, And also to do a fairly detailed um, pregnancy scan to make sure there are no other associated abnormalities, for example, cardiac lesions.
1: Okay. And so, um, you know, what's the success rate of, I'm imagining it's surgery again, is it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the this you know this is normally expected because it's been diagnosed in utero, um, and normally you prepare for the delivery. I think most of these women would go on to have a normal vaginal delivery. Right. Although depending on the particular circumstances, some may go for an elective cesarean section. But the management is really to um, do surgery fairly quickly straight after birth. I think usually what they do is excise the sac. And then they try to reintegrate the bowel back into the abdominal cavity. Right. The problem is that um, because most of the bowels can have been lying outside the abdominal cavity, the actual abdominal cavity is very small or can be very small. So if you can't put it all back with, without causing too much intra-abdominal pressure and close the defect, then you have to leave it open and create a sort of a temporary silo from some, some synthetic material. And then you progressively... Um, uh, reduce the size of that silo as the abdominal wall stretches until you can close it in the midline. Uh, the problem is that if you try and squash it all back and the, the intra-abdominal pressure is too high, then you compromise the blood flow to the bowel and you may run into problems with feed intolerance or ischemia of the bowel or, or something like that. Right. So you have to do it fairly gently.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's ne- never any circumstances that you'd cut a bit of bowel away and then...
2: Well, if the bowel... I think usually in exomphalos, the bowel is usually healthy. Yeah. But if any of the bowel is compromised, um, I mean, if it's either compromised shortly after birth so the blood supply is no good and it's non-viable, then you have to excise that. Mm. It could be that it's been compromised during intutrine development and then it might be stenosed or even um, there might be a bowel atresia. So again, at that primary operation, you probably fix any of those problems.
1: Brilliant.
2: Later on... I think all of these babies will have a malrotation associated. Oh. Normally, you don't do anything about that in the initial stages. And I think most of them get by without any further surgery. But if the malrotation presents as vomiting or a volvulus, that might might need to be fixed a bit later.
1: Right. I think. Say so two in one there. And bad luck. Right. Okay. Um, we've done stenosis, We've done malrotation. We've done on ph- Let's have a little look at gastroschisis. Is that how you pronounce that?
2: That's right, gastroschisis. Yep. Yeah. Again, uh, not very common, somewhere between one in three and twenty thousand births. Um, but again, something that if you spend some time in paediatrics, you'll it. see. Yeah. Okay.
1: And um, is that fairly similar to omphalocele in that it's an abdominal wall defect?
2: That's right. Yeah. It tends to be a small sort of two or three centimetre defect in the anterior mm-hmm. abdominal wall. Nearly always just to the right of the umbilicus. Oh. Why it's always there, nobody knows. Quite it's quite
1: interesting. It's
2: nearly always in that position, and then through that defect, the you know you there's evisceration of the abdominal contents. So you get small bowel, large bowel, sometimes the stomach, occasionally the gonads. Apparently, really lying on the abdominal surface. They they're not covered in a sac as with an omphalocele, but they tend to be sort of matted together in a sort of fibrous peel. And that's formed from the bowel interacting with the amniotic fluid to form this kind of fibrous membrane.
1: Goodness. Right, okay, so um again that's sort of fairly easy to diagnose. Um, um is it a similar procedure to omphalocele?
2: Yeah, and um, the procedures are similar in terms of its management. Mm. For some strange reason, gastroschisis tends not to be associated with anything else. It tends to be an isolated lesion, so you don't go and do amniocentesis oh, right. okay. um, routinely unless your, you know, your ultrasound scan, you know, shows some other problem. Um, the the bowel is more at risk in gastroschisis than in omphalocele because it's not within a sac. Right. So usually, you know, the surgeon is probably present at delivery and will cover the exposed bowel with a sort of moist, protective dressing. That's to sort of make sure the bowel doesn't get damaged or dehydrated to reduce the loss of electrolytes and protein and also to try and prevent infection. And then they go pretty quickly to surgery.
1: Right, and it's dealt with.
2: Yeah, the surgery, I mean, ideally, you just push everything back into the abdominal cavity and close the defect. But again, because the bowel may have been mostly outside um, the abdominal cavity in utero, the abdominal cavity might be quite small. So you may have to put in a temporary sac using a synthetic material and slowly close the abdomen over time. Right. This is, of course, surgical territory. And I'm mm. sure I hope the surgeons will probably tell you much better what they do. But um, that's the general approach. One of the big problems in these babies is that um, they often don't grow very well in utero. So they're often small babies with in utero growth retardation. I think because of the electrolyte losses and protein losses from the bowel into the amniotic fluid. So they're often small babies in their own right. And that needs management, you know, careful nutritional management and support, as well as the sort of surgical lesion.
0: Okay, brilliant. Well that's interesting because we're going to be talking about so much soon, aren't we? So we'll be looking at the muscles of the wall, and
1: their development. Yeah, and the migration that's involved. Yeah. So yeah. we'll have a look, look at that hopefully, fill in a few gaps in knowledge there. Superb. Right, the final thing we're going to look at is anal atresia stroke stenosis. Um, so, what's that?
2: Yeah, this, um, there's a few sort of different lesions that all come under the sort of umbrella term of anorectal malformations. Right. So anal stenosis, which is where the anal sphincter is too tight, ectopia, where it's, the anus is displaced anteriorly, or sometimes in anus, where there is actually no opening. And um, they all come under the same sort of group. And the first, they're about one in 5,000 live births, a bit more common in males and females. Mm. And again unknown um, yeah. in
1: it's interesting about that male the male factor again
2: that's nearly always the case hmm. uh, general rule of thumb is things are worse in males it <laughs> uh, doesn't matter really what you're talking about oh, it's generally true
1: Okay, but so obviously this is a problem that's, um, you know, on the inside, so it's not going to be as obvious. So how do you go about diagnosing? What symptoms do you see?
2: Yeah, it can, um, it's usually picked up during the sort of usual neonatal exam. You know, all right. babies get examined within the first day or two of life by the junior doctors. And one of the things they check is for anal atresia and anus. So it's usually picked up then. Of course, um, there may be a delay in the passage of meconium. Mm. You know, all babies are expected to pass the first black tarry stool within the first 24, 48 hours. And obviously that doesn't happen. So it's either the mum or the nurse is being concerned about meconium, or it being picked up uh, during the routine examination. And what people do then is really to, although they can see the defect, the problem, the the, the, the thing to do is to identify how bad it is. You, you know, the, the, the bowel inside can end in a blind loop just above the anus. That would be a low lesion. Right. And that's fairly easy to fix with an anoplasty, just sort of connecting the two together. Sure. But the colon can end quite high up in the pelvis, and there can be a long gap between it and the anus. And in that situation with a high lesion, there's often a fistula to the bladder or the urethra or the vagina. So that needs probably a colostomy, You know, bringing the colon out to the surface closing the fistulas and then at a later stage doing a pull through where the bowel is disconnected from the abdominal wall and then pull through down onto the onto the anus and a, um, an opening made. And that initial sort of delineating the abnormality is usually done by ultrasound and, and radiology. Brilliant. Brilliant. Right,
1: okay, so that's surgery, that's involved um, and, you know, is it a fairly good success rate?
2: Yeah, I think it depends on the um the actual details of the lesion. I think usually, yes, these, these kids are fixable. Um, having said that, they often have ongoing problems. You know, these all these bowel problems, there can be other defects within the bowel. Either whatever's caused the anal ectopia has caused other problems, or because the anus has been obstructed during pregnancy, the rest of the bowel hasn't developed as well as it should. So these kids often have associated malrotations or they have gastroesophageal reflux or other sorts of um, functional or sometimes anatomical problems. So You always have to keep a lookout for them. So even when you fix the lesion in the neonatal period and everything looks OK, these kids need following up to make sure they don't become constipated and that they grow normally and their feeding goes OK. Right.
1: Absolutely brilliant. Well, I think that's all we've really got
0: time for today, Dr. Webster. Yeah, that was really interesting. Thanks, Steve. Did I pass? Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating. Uh, we'll check fascinating. Later. <laughs> so, no, it's really nice to be able to add the medical side to the embryology stuff that we teach. And I know the medical students are find it more interesting. And we learned a fair bit from that.
1: They'll go away and have a thrive for embryology now.
0: You reckon? No.
2: Well, it's very clear this embryology is directly relevant to mm-hmm. what you see. Absolutely. And, um, you know, the surgeon, I mean, this is mainly surgical territory, obviously, but the surgeons would have a very good understanding of the embryology. And they would apply that directly when they're assessing these lesions and, and looking at management.
0: Which links with what we say about trying to tie in embryology to anatomy. Brilliant. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. No Thank problem. Very, very embryology is important. Yeah, round of applause.
2: <laughs> Cheers. Bye for now. Thank you.
0: Okay, so that's the development of um, the alimentary tract. So in the beginning, we saw how we went from the previous podcast and uh, a flat trilaminar sheet to form a tube, which became the gut tube. And then we looked at the three parts of the gut tube, the foregut, the midgut, the hindgut. We looked at what adult structures those parts of the gut contributed to and how they were formed and how they affected um, the layout of these structures we saw in the adult. Um, and we talked a bit about the blood supply and associated bits and bobs. Um, and hopefully that's fairly straightforward. I think it is. Yeah. Well, thanks, Rihanna, for that.
1: Thank you, Samuel.
0: Next time, we're going to look at the musculoskeletal system, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we're going to get involved with somites.
0: Yeah, the musculoskeletal system is two bigger subjects subject to do in one go. We'll probably do a little bite-sized chunk. We'll do somites. Just we'll somites. Do, yeah, we'll do limb development in a separate one. And we'll maybe do body wall in a separate one. And we'll certainly do development of skull and bits in a yeah. separate one. We'll do little bite-sized chunks. But we'll do somites next time because they're really interesting. Funny games. They're great little chunks of uh, cells.
1: Yeah, great little chunks of amazing kind.
0: Yeah. Okay, thanks, Diana. Thank you. See you all next time. Bye, people. Bye.